Right now on Tech Radio, the price of tweeting is about to go up a hundredfold. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 992. This week, why Windows 11 is lagging, the latest stupid move from X, and we discover what social loafing is. Also, our guest today is Dr. Esther Murphy from Trinity College Dublin. We'll be chatting about Ireland's digital divide problem and a co-created digital skills program to bridge the gap. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining us, as always, is our Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, I'm going to start off this week with a song for Elon. Okay. Yeah. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, and it's down to one dollar. Down to one dollar. If you happen to live in New Zealand or the Philippines, which are clearly markets that he's he, he can take or leave, because why else would he be trialling something like this? Uh, the latest Twitter measure to cut down on bots is to charge everyone who wants to use it one dollar. Um, OK, here's the rationale. Uh, Twitter, well, X, do we still tweet on X or do we X on X? When I look at my phone and I want to launch the X application, it's got a Twitter logo. Right. So I don't know. I just continue calling it Twitter. Anyways, fair enough. Um, uh, where was I? Yeah. Um, the rationale initially was, OK, we will get better quality content on Twitter by charging a subscription rate. You get your blue tick. Um, you get better engagement. Your posts get boosted. All that good stuff. Of course, what we found then was that the site without any of its moderation team, I mean, 80% of the staff was was let go. So all the moderation teams, all that effort had vanished overnight in favour of this free speech absolutism that Elon Musk is a big believer in because he will never feel the consequences thereof. So he, uh, the platform was flooded with bots because there was nobody, no, nobody mind in the house, basically. And, you know, his $8 uh, a month subscription thing with Twitter Blue was uh, meant to be the solution to it. Uh, it wasn't. What you ended up getting was people paying to have their opinions seen, right? Uh, but it's a still massive problem of bots on the account, just, you know, automated mm. accounts created for free. Uh, and now we're in the age of, you know, AI, where maybe we're getting AI created bots that are just going on and proliferating misinformation and spam and pretty much all that stuff that the platform is known for and known for being particularly toxic for. So the latest idea uh, in the war against bots is that, okay, well, maybe we made some inroads by, you know, introducing Twitter Blue. Um, how about we just introduce like the basic, basic tier of $1 a day, just put in some kind of a barrier to weed out all those AIs creating free bots, uh, creating free bot accounts. Um, on one level, yep, fine, maybe. Uh, on another um, your platform's junk. Why not just invest money in making it better? 
<laughs> well, we ne- we never we never lately have a, a good word to say about no. Twitter or X or whatever uh, or Elon or, or whatever. I get where he's coming from on this because I use one or two services where they want to have some kind of reassurance that it's a human being that's using the service, all right? And because of that, I pay like two, three, four dollars or whatever, five dollars, I think, for one of them. Um, and it's it's the smallest payment ever, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But it's more kind of like, okay, so you're a human and you're using this for a real reason, da-da-da. So I get the reason why he's going for a dollar a year. But... Do you see, this is going back, this is also going back to a thing. I don't know how many years ago. I was talking with Colin about this, like in the late 90s, all right? And we were kind of saying, you know where the internet is really going to take off, okay? Is when we solve the problem of micropayments, all right? Having to get out your card and register and do the yada, yada, yada for a dollar? Ah, Yeah. Ah. You know, so um, and I think so. I don't you know. know I, in I, retail I, 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 I and in hospitality, they're really getting on top of micropayments. Where you just you go into a place and there's like a sum up or a um, it's not a pebble thing, but it's it's basically hmm. like you just tap your card and you know it, it takes whatever you want, like a, a euro yeah. or a fiver or whatever. And that's it. You're done. That's the kind of frictionless thing we're looking for, especially with very small amounts. If you want to support somebody's channel by going, okay, we'll buy you a cup of coffee. Perfect. There's the means to do it. Uh, And you're right. That is the problem that the internet um, is still struggling with. I mean, you know, physically, I think we're pretty much there. We're doing pretty well. But um, yeah, yeah, online, it's a struggle because there is the perceived lack of value of a lot of digital products. Yeah. And do you know, if you were like for a newspaper or something like that, if you were paying a couple of cents for it, mm. yeah, how many more people would look at the Irish Independent, the Irish Times or, or whatever it happens to be if it was like, you know, five cent? Yeah, just click that five cent, done, whatever. You know, mm. you don't think about those things. Anyways, that's that's the whole, I, I just, you've put that into my head and I'm just laughing how 30 years later, still talking about it. Yeah. Still talking about micropayments on the uh, on the internet. Anyway, moving on with uh, X, other news for them is that they have been, and this is not related to the trying to take a dollar off every user, um, but they've been hit with a fine in Australia. Uh, what was the fine for and will they pay it? Okay. Uh, I say the amount of the fine is almost immaterial, to be honest, because the point is that they have been fined. Um, I think we're up to around, oh, jeepers, what is it, 700,000 US uh, Australian dollars at the moment. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, that's it, about £2.50. It's not, it's not big money. But the problem yeah. is that the Australian eSafety Commissioner sent Twitter a whole list of questions. Basically, you know, what, what have you done for us lately? Sort of, what, what are you doing for your user base to protect them from hate speech? Um, and bots and spam and all the really toxic stuff that happens on Twitter. What, what are you doing to protect people against misinformation? And Twitter came back, or X came back, with uh, an incomplete submission. Let's put it that way. Uh, mm. Where they just didn't answer some questions that they didn't really want to. 
and this was you know pretty disrespectful way to uh, conduct oneself in the middle of an an official investigation. So uh, the Australian Eat Safety Commissioner did levy a significant, well, by its standards, a significant fine. But, you know, they're very much looking towards um, the Digital Services Act in the state in the EU as the model of how things can go forward because yeah like if you're not charging in the billions they're not going to feel it it's when you get to the digital services act and that's six percent of global turnover um uh sanction that's when you really that's something i think europe has gotten pretty right once you get into that level of sanction you'll get their attention and i think to have just not replied to some questions that that was submitted to them in an official document was just very, very arrogant, you know, and whether it was a measure of don't answer that by, uh, you know, the one lawyer left employed there (laughs) (laughs) or a, uh, a directive from on high. Yeah. You just can't uh, conduct yourself like that. And I think, the sanction might be as much to do with the treatment of the investigation as the nature of the um, reply. Yeah. Yep. But here's the thing. X has argued that, do you know what? You can find us whatever you like. Um, we don't have an operation in your country. So fine. What are you going to do? Like kick us out? We're not going to pay it. Yeah. We're not going to pay it. Oh my goodness. All right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> It's just, it's insane when you think about one of the biggest brands in the world with one of the richest men in the world behind it and just just riding rush. Well, he realised fairly quickly he was onto a, a very bad deal, which is why he tried to wriggle his way out of it. Um, but yeah, we we, yeah. we get the X we deserve. It will be interesting to see, though, what the Australians do with Twitter and all of the other social media, because if they're looking at the Digital Services Act in Europe, uh, uh, I would imagine that Australia, because it's such a nanny state, would just love to be able to impose those rules and to protect their users and uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. We'll see what happens with that. Um, I want to ask you about social loafing in a second, because I haven't a clue what it is. But firstly, tell me about Windows 11. How is it doing compared... Like, is it doing well? Are people jumping in on it, loving it, or is it's, it kind of just lackluster? It's, well, I mean, people don't hate it. I mean, the, this is a, a, a report in the register based on stats by Windows Central and Stat Counter. So there, there's, there's quite a bit of bulk behind this, if you, if you want to look yeah. at it that way. Um, Windows 7 had a pretty big jump um, over Windows Vista. Very rapid adoption. Windows 10 yes, but had a very big jump off the back of Windows 8 and 8.1. Um, now we're into Windows 11, but Windows 10 was fine. So we're into the stage where Windows 11 is kind of, it's crawling along, but it's still not at the same place Windows 10 was in at the same time in its cycle. So Personally, I have Windows 10 running at, uh, running on one machine and Windows 11 on the other. Um, I notice very little in the way of difference on a day-to-day level. And Windows 11 is a much bigger resource hog 
than Windows 10. So if you were to put them side by side and say, which one do you want to buy? I'd probably go Windows 10. Um, I The main, you know, one of the big sells of the two of them is Windows Defender, Defender, which is an mm. absolutely fantastic piece of software and has really changed the game in security uh, for consumers. And uh, so I think like you've got two pretty good operating systems. If Windows 11 was to have come after Windows 7, I think everybody would be like, that's a fairly impressive upgrade. Like, um, you know, I'm, mm. I'm interested. Um, the fact that Windows 10 kind of got so many things right in the same that Windows 7 got so many things wrong. You know, you can see the milestones and it gets very hard to create that appetite to want to move. So what do you do? Like, I mean, you you start to integrate these very intrusive prompts. So whenever you switch on your computer, it's, are you sure you wouldn't like Windows 11? I'm like, I was sure last week. (laughs) I was sure yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I'll tell you, uh, I kind of get that because Windows 11 isn't the big jump, as you say, that Windows 10 was. And I think that they put a much bigger push behind Windows 10 than they did with Windows 11. And I think one of the problems with Windows 11 is that you need to have one of the more modern security chips on it. And of course, lots of people have got much older hardware that can't run Windows 11. So there's all those kind of things. One thing I will warn you about, I did it during the week, try new Outlook. And I did. And it looks great. And I have to say, it's quite easy to use, but it doesn't do one of the basic things that is going to push me back to my old program. And that is rules for email. Can't find it anywhere on the desktop app. Desktop. Desktop app. Oh, okay. And if something like that, if it takes you a while to find something as basic as that, I'm out. Well, there you go. That's it. You know, to, and there's kind of one of two other things uh, with it. And I'm like, yeah, I've tried to, I've given it the few days. So yeah, uh, if you use rules for email, beware if you're going to upgrade to the latest Outlook. Finally today, social loafing. Oh. What the heck is that? Yeah, no, it's it's just hanging out, doing nothing. <laughs> it's it's everything it sounds like. It's It's just not... Doing a heck of a lot. Um, now, this is an interesting story that uh, <laughs> popped up in The Guardian. And and this was all to do with um, people working side by side with robots. Yeah. As a report came out from the Technological University of Berlin. Right. And what they found was that, OK, there's the, the brave new world of robots will free us up to do higher order tasks. Brilliant. Very happy with that. Um, However, what they were finding was that people were being freed up by robots to do. eh. Eh. Whatever. Whatever they wanted. So it's not like a case of I'm going to go to the gym more. I'm going to go walking more. I'll spend more time cooking a healthy meal at home or I'll be able to spend time on research and development or educating myself or improving my career or spending more time with my kids. No, it's just smoking around the back of the building with your co-workers. Is a, that bit, it? a bit of that. Also, you know, a bit of that. I'm expected to do X things per day. I've got a robot beside me. Once X is hit. <laughs> I'm done. I am done. I am checking <laughs> I am out. I love it. Well, listen, that's enough social loafing for today <laughs> uh, between you and I, Niall. Thanks for keeping us up to date with the news. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. 
get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Despite being a nation where 99% of us are online, there remains a huge gulf in digital skills from being able to fend off a cyber attack to writing a letter to a loved one. The barriers are hugely varied as well, from multi-million euro budgets to something simple like putting together appropriate teaching materials. DigiID is a new accessible digital skills education program where the participants have a significant role in how they are taught and what they are taught. Dr. Esther Murphy from Trinity College's School of Engineering's Robotics and Innovation Lab is Principal Investigator of the project, and she shared the story so far with Niall Kitson. Esther, we've talked on the show a little bit about the idea of the digital divide in the past, and you know whether it be by age or education or socioeconomic uh, opportunity, you're looking at a different kind of digital divide. So tell us a bit about it. Thanks so much. Yeah, so our program has been designed, you know, within the socio-political context of digital inclusion and access as a human right, underpinned by World Health Organization's core sustainable goals, in particular in line with United Nations principle of leave no one behind. Really, it's been about looking at that untapped resource of people who do have Uh, digital skills developed and who can train with us to support their peers in terms of digital onboarding and digital literacy. And so that's really been a critical piece to our program, addressing digital literacy through the engagement with peers who have uh, digital companies to support others get started with their software. So I suppose what you're working with is people that I I suppose would be regarded as having marginalised voices uh, for which nothing is designed for them out of the box, you know, in terms of assistive uh, technology. Um, So how are you working to come up with solutions? Are you consulting with industry or are you working with a recruited population? Yeah, thanks so much. It's actually a combination of both. I mean, the heart of our work um, has been the development of citizen advisory panels, really acknowledging the lived experience of people, in our case, uh, communities of people with intellectual disability and autism. We know that this population um, with one in three reporting communication difficulties and indeed one in two of just uh, reporting difficulties communicating with health professionals and educators, that we need to speak with them directly to hear about the challenges they face in terms of their access but also bring together a wide range um, of disciplines. We're a really um, multidisciplinary pan-European program and collaborating also with industry and delighted to have a collaboration with Microsoft. And in particular, uh, to that question of um, the the solutions and tools we're developing, we are developing mainstream uh, programs um, addressing mainstream um, digital skills and tools, for example, the Microsoft suite of tools, but also um, other um, widely used um, tools from large large companies that we're all using these days, but just to really focus on the accessibility features and functionalities. And who better to teach people how to get started than individuals themselves with an intellectual disability um, who have um, understood, tried and tested how to get started with these tools. And what we're doing together, co-creating education, video education, accessibly designed, placing the the individual with the intellectual disability at the heart of the program. So when you open our platform, the first images are with um, 
our teachers getting people started. And, and uh, you know, the reaction to this has been wonderful uh, for the community to see people like themselves, as cheesy as it sounds, you know, that feeling of when you, when you see it, you can be it has really been the heart of the work. So um, the collaborations with um, industry are growing, um, which is wonderful, but um, it's really all commenced with the grassroots connections with the individuals with intellectual disabilities through networks within, um, you know, um, the different disciplines across uh, uh, campus in Trinity where I'm based, I'm based at the School of Engineering with a new affiliation with the ADAPT Centre. Um, but we're working with, um, you know, various groups in education, psychology, uh, speech and language therapy, amongst others, to, to kind of build networks within the disability sector and um, identify individuals who'd like to participate within um, our citizen advisory panels and then work with them to identify individuals who would like to come on board um, as teachers with. So a salient issue that we've identified with citizen science in the past is the problem of keeping people engaged. Um, have you found retention to be an issue? Thanks for that question. I mean, I suppose um, given the nature of the conceptualization of the program, starting with uh, engaging with people with intellectual disability to ask them, what would you like us to examine in terms of this really big challenge of uh, digital access and digital inclusion to grow that network? Um, and I think, you know, a really important factor is addressing the issue of employment for this population. We know um, research teaches us that there are up to well, well over 80% of people with intellectual disability unemployed. And so um, why not within our research address this challenge as well by actually hiring the, the citizen advisory panels and really placing respect and value for that lived experience role so that all members, we now um, are employing 14 people with intellectual disability so we work with themselves, their supporters, their advocacy groups, and um, their families. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we see their progression, uh, which is amazing to see, into the higher education settings, into employment. And with them, our, our network is growing. So in terms of retention, you know, we are engaging with people who already have a passion for technology. And it's kind of harnessing that compassion to also help others. So, um, but then... Um, Crucially, and I think it's something that and we, we received um, great feedback uh, recently. Um, it was wonderful to win the, the European Digital Skills Award in the Inclusion in a Digital World category from the European Commission in acknowledgement of our co-design approach and work and embedding the citizen advisory panels. And it is that relationship building and trust. But again, that they are paid for their work. We meet on a monthly basis. Um, we meet and we validate and review all of our uh, research findings. They are involved in all the decision making. And as good design, we know that it's an iterative, inherently iterative process. We build in the time um, to not only where are we engaging them with them um, at the start of you know, our research questions um, and validating what we find out in our co-creation focus groups. To date, we've met with over 500 people with intellectual disability and autism across the European Consortium. Um, our panels are not only in Ireland, but in our European consortiums. And I think it's because, you know, they, they have um, an authentic interest in technology and they have um, a real um, commitment to support and see um, their own peers um, develop the digital competency with them. And so, that, that, you know, in the outset, it was very challenging. We were in COVID when we commenced the program and that catch-22 of how do you kind of 
engage with population that are perceived as digitally disenfranchised via digital means. And I guess um, it came down to flexibility, respect for people's time in terms of the supporters and the staff who maybe were enabling. The access certainly were in the earliest months enabling join us online because we are now talking about a population who many of whom we know, you know, there was just uh, 22% of the population having basic digital literacy skills. That is about like independently being able to join um, a virtual call, independently manage a, a digital device if they had one. Um, so we were heavily reliant on um, families, carers um, and health professionals when, at a time when research was very low down um, priority lists, you know. So it was about listening intently um, to what might work well for those organizations and how could we rethink research as a kind of fun inclusion activity because, you know, um, we really perceive and I have conceived this program to to kind of think of digital inclusion within the wider uh, topic of social inclusion um, as an enabler to stay connected when people were lonely at home. Um, there's a lot of fear in that community um, about online safety. It's a topic that we're really addressing within the platform and within the education that's co-designed with the individuals themselves. Um, so like figuring out, we had a funny one of like 11 o'clock being the magic hour when people's energies were good, but also aligning with um, families who were working from home and are enabling people join calls, but services who were stretched. And, you know, it's really important to think that this program is also being co-designed with those supporters, with those families. We have uh, listened to their perspective on topics that are really um, ha- are important for them to support um, their loved ones get started and support their um, service users. And so, um, you know, that really has been crucial, the flexibility to be available to meet online when suited. And now that we can, um, when we're in this phase of build back better, um, that we don't um, continue to leave this population behind is really critical. And so we're out and about. Um, we've had a bit of a roadshow, trying out the app in the communities, user testing, um, you know, redesigning, uh, reiterations, and um, being guided by the, the the topics and tools that people um, really really need to make those um, successful transitions into education and employment, if they so wish. Because really, ultimately, it's about enabling people to live the digital lives of their choice. You know, um, but there is such a um, a shift um, now towards enabling inclusive education. Um, you know, there's been really in, important strides uh, there from government in terms of a new um, digital inclusion roadmap that was launched, um, a kind of um, interdepartmental strategy. And there's a recognition that while uh, while um, there's been great um, advancements during the pandemic, that there's much to do, specifically around accessible um, digital skills education. You know, our goal is really to be a support and um, to transform the lives of this community and really see the valuable contributions they can make, um, both uh, in education and to to employers. You know, with with the right as with the right types of um, accessible education. And who better, as I say, to lead it than the individuals themselves that have best understood the system features functionality and how to to enable this um, to live the lives um, they wish to do within education and employment. Lastly, um, 
the way that you've outlined the project certainly sounds like you've you've nailed down that sort of qualitative uh, discussion about you know identifying problems, coming up with solutions. Um, there is always the question of the quantitative output as well. So, what kind of metrics are you looking at in that regard? That's really interesting. So, as um, absolutely, I mean, I think we can't underestimate how unheard the voices of this community have been in the conversations around technology creation. So first um, and foremost, really the priority was to get that right, how we listen, um, how we can learn together. And in the building of the platform, in terms of the technology piece, um, we have a supporter side um, of the the platform, which enables the the collection of metrics to to examine the progression. Um, It's really been a challenge within this space to to kind of assess what we might say learning landed, like can somebody actually, um, you know, when on completion of a course, can they demonstrate that they know how to do such a, such a, such an activity, demonstrate the skill, you know? So we've designed a, a lot of accessible quizzes. Quizzes were really popular. And when people were at home, um, bearing in mind this is a population that weren't previously engaging in online education, so we did a lot of work around um, the design of accessible assessment tools. And so um, the platform will enable organizations, families and the learners to be able to monitor their progress and to be able to see, for example, it's underpinned with person-centered planning best practices so that people are kind of seeing their personal best, being able to gather badges, there's gamification strategies there. Like it's all about making the learning fun for people because again, this is a population who's retention in online education has been very, very low um, if they'd had any experience at all. Even some of our um, very digitally competent um, teachers have really struggled with mainstream online education. And that really is the differentiating factor for Digi Academy. that as it's been co-designed with this population throughout the process, that it will stand, uh, will stand out as a solution that really will enable them to show off, to really, to really demonstrate what they can do. Um, so, you know, that's what we're actually evaluating. We'll be evaluating through um, live partnership trials. We're really excited that we'll be kicking off our trials with higher education institutions and working with employers to examine uh, work use cases. Um, so then, again, that considering the pathway and um, for this population, once uh, once they have gained this digital literacy, where to next? Um, so into employers. And again, just noting that there has been such a surge in interest in inclusive employment strategies. And so that uh, we can really demonstrate the skills that this population can uh, can be equipped with to really contribute to, to industry and in, in the employment sector. And that was Dr. Esther Murphy from Trinity College Dublin talking about DigiID. For more on the project, visit digi-academy.org. And as always, that link in the show notes. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. Do check out some of the other stories online that we didn't have time to chat about on the podcast today, including some positive news from the Midlands ICT cluster. Medtronic is making a significant investment in University College Galway and the Learnovate Centre has launched a new startup accelerator. You'll find all of those and more online at techcentral.ie. 
We're back again next Friday as always on RT Radio 1 Extra and of course you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. On the next time from myself Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson thanks for listening take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io From me Artemis goodbye Goodbye